power on. Woo! To this day, when I hear that sound, I almost want to call it an opening sound. And you know what it is, not just by the title of this episode, but you know what it is when you hear it. Uh, it's one of those things, almost like in uh, in classic versions of, of Windows, the operating system, uh, like say Windows 95 or no, it was up to like Windows 2000 where they had the Utopia sound scheme where I, I'd always hear that. And it's just like, man, that really does sound like the future. That is a sound. That sounds like the future. And speaking of sound, of course, your ears are getting filled with the best in professional podcasting, baby. It is the Golden Stang, the man of tomorrow's top zoo, the rated R radio star here for another little special, what we call Zomia one underground specials in the sovereign tech feed, uh, where, well, in this case, we're going to cover, yeah, I feel like a lot of us, I'm not one of them. I wish I was, <laughs> but a lot of us have a lot of extra time on our hands these days. And, uh, I have been recording a series and it's always been a debate as to when I was going to release, which one, uh, not in any specific order. Um, but I've been recording a series of specials that are basically updating the greatest games for classic video game consoles in 2020. Since maybe now some people actually have the time to get some of these in. And as you could tell by that opening sound, we are talking about none other than the PlayStation one, uh, a system that while I could go over the history of the PlayStation, I don't really need to. In fact, I recently watched a, uh, documentary, which was just about three hours long. I imagine when it comes out on disc, there'll probably be a bunch of bonus features and it'll add up to like six hours. Um, but speaking of series, there is a documentary series called from bedrooms to billions, uh, the first one that I saw was a couple of years ago. I think it was the Amiga years, um, which that was fairly well done. Um, and then the, they just came out with the PlayStation revolution. That's the latest in the from bedrooms to billions series. Uh, and I watched this and it definitely gives you the most in-depth history, uh, of the development of the PlayStation to date. Uh, going all the way back to, you know, the history that they had with dealing with, uh, you know, well, Nintendo, of course, which people remember when the PlayStation was supposed to be somewhat of an add-on, right, for the Super Nintendo, um, or how it was a separate unit. Now we actually, we have, or, you know, there, there, there are prototypes of that separate unit, or at least one that somebody has in their private collection now uh, after it was found. And then, of course, there, you know, or supposedly now, my understanding is, is that they did have some dealings with Sega. I was not really aware of that. Um, but Sony entering... The video game industry, I mean, is certainly worthy of a three-hour documentary. It's certainly worthy of me talking about on Sovereign Tech because, pun intended, it did change the game um, in many ways. In fact, while I don't think it's unfair to say that Sega, with both the Genesis um, and really the Saturn as well, they were pushing very hard, uh, very hard to you know, get rid of the stigma that video games are for kids. And this is to say nothing of what was being done on, you know, on PC. Uh, that's a, that's a whole other realm um, that people don't exactly like to talk about for some reason. I mean, well, granted they did do a 
you know, they did about a documentary about the Amiga, but anyway, uh, the PlayStation, while, while I think Sega successfully pulled off making games far more mature, uh, not just around night trap either, <laughs> but, uh, Sony built a very real culture, um, which they gave a name to the PlayStation underground. And that was kind of like their version of the Nintendo power club, you know, uh, or the Nintendo, you know, whatever Nintendo had for, for a club membership at the time, you know, they keep changing the names, my Nintendo, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, but PlayStation underground, I mean, you, you felt that edge, you felt that attitude, you know, with, with the PlayStation and it did end up, uh, the documentary itself, by the way, that I was talking about, what were my thoughts on it? I was thinking about reviewing it on sovereign tech, but there's, there's not a whole ton to say about it. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It, it lays out, it actually does far more than the PlayStation one. It really, it gets into the PlayStation two as well, which is perhaps the more interesting conversation. Um, because the PlayStation two, despite the fact that the Dreamcast, just about, I, I want to say to this day was the, the most, um, feature rich, console. Like, I mean, as far as leaps go, right. I mean, yes, you know, successive generations, especially lately, say from the Xbox 360 to the Xbox one and so on, you know, keep adding in, you know, more features, but where consoles went from, you know, we're, we're doing a, B, C, D, E, and still kind of do the dreamcast really went from say consoles were at C the dreamcast instantly jumped without going D E, you know, F G, whatever. They just jumped right to N or to M or, you know, pick a letter far away. It doesn't really matter uh, because they just packed everything, you know, all these new features into a console that were not, well, again, with PC were commonplace, but for a console, wholly new, uh, you know, territory in many ways. Granted, yes, the Saturn could connect to the internet and it, you know, it, it holds, it should hold a place in history, uh, you know, for being the first console to really connect to the internet in any kind of meaningful way. Um, the Dreamcast was definitely trying to take that to the next level amongst a bunch of other ideas. I mean, it was just an absolute leap in, you know, in, in feature richness, if that's a term that I can use. Now I'm sure Sega felt that it needed to be because what say I, I Sega had to feel that they were taking on, and this is, this has been Sega's and, and hell I've actually, I've, I've never published it. I've written an entire book around the history of Sega. Uh, some people have seen it and read uh, bits of it, but I wanted one of the chief premises of the, of that book that I wrote is that Sega's failure is that they were basically always reacting. They were always trying to outdo more or less the previous generation. And that always fucked them up. Like the Dreamcast really was competing against the PlayStation one PlayStation two and Xbox comes around and they wipe the floor with it. I'm not saying that they should have, but they did. Uh, even though it is a next gen system again, what, what Sega felt like was their competition was really the PlayStation one. Uh, and probably not the N64 at all. Of course, this is true for the Saturn as well. The Saturn was trying to best, you know, the Super Nintendo and so on. Of course, then it found out it had to beat a bunch of other systems, but that was the original idea. Just like the Genesis originally was not competing against the Super Nintendo. The Genesis was competition was trying to beat the, you know, the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And Sega always did that. And they, I'm sure they felt because of just how, 
while maybe not as feature rich as the Dreamcast would end up being, but just on the, the types of games, um, the, and I mean like the new types of games, and this is a key thing to get into. In fact, that documentary does a great job of exploring this, how for the PlayStation one, the thing that was really amazing about it was all of the really wild experimental games, uh, that you just wouldn't get anywhere else. And that became, I mean, and there's varying reasons why those became possible. Part of it was horsepower. Part of it was, you know, using a, uh, somewhat more open source or not open source, but somewhere more open medium, you know, you didn't have uh, cartridge fees and Sony was pretty nice on the licensing apparently as compared to what Nintendo would do. Uh, so, you know, it just, it became more cost effective to put games out, um, that were frankly odd. Hell, you even end up with one, with that in one of the names of one of, uh, one of the PlayStation's original games, that being odd world, right? Uh, you know, Abe's Odyssey and so on, but so many new, new types of games were entering the fray. Uh, the quality and the length of these games, you know, basically I think made, there was a real case to where the PlayStation and in some ways it was, I mean, I remember what was it Madden 2003 or even 2004 for the, for the original PlayStation, they were still making PlayStation games, you know, almost a decade into its life. Uh, now PlayStation two would end up with the same thing. And I would argue for very similar reasons, you know, but, PlayStation really, really late as far as gaming goes, laid the groundwork for what, I mean, everybody talks about how Mario 64, you know, made 3d games legit. Yeah. But a lot of the things that we consider standards and that we consider like that we just expect from games and a lot of the, the complexity, but also the oddity and, and just, you know, fresh types of gaming all came to life in a very real way. Um, on the PlayStation. That's not to knock any of its competition at the time. I think the Saturn's a great system. It's the greatest 2D system of all time. I I don't I don't think there's any debate around that around that title. Um, but the PlayStation? Now, here's what's tough about the PlayStation. <laughs> so I put together um a top eight here. Uh, and I'm surprised that some of these did not appear in uh in that documentary. The documentary was pretty good. I don't know. There's a lot of that history that could have been chopped out, cut out. It didn't need to be, you know, two hours and 45 minutes or whatever. Um, but it was certainly very interesting to see what everybody was thinking, where they're coming from. Um, there's, there's stuff that I really like, they should have spent, they could have spent an entire hour just talking to, in my opinion, talking to the developers at Cygnosis. Now they talked to Cygnosis. Uh, and how they were one of like the early acquisitions that Sony had ever engaged in, which was unheard of in many ways at the time. Um, that, that was kind of interesting, but I mean, there's just, there's so much more that they, they could have talked about. There should have been conversations around sled storm. There are a lot of really, really classic games that should have been in that conversation to talk about how they just changed all expectations, uh, around video gaming and made in a very real way, made video gaming grow up. So it, it's, it's a good documentary. I, I wouldn't call it great uh, by no means. It's better than console wars, which I think I recently talked about console wars. Um, it's certainly better than that, but you know, I, I mean, if you've got, if you got some three hours, you know, part of the problem too, is, is that a lot of it, I mean, and it's not a problem. I think it's a good thing uh, that there are subtitles because they talk to a lot of Japanese developers and they don't dub them. They, you got to read the subtitles, which is fine. Um, and, and actually I think a great thing, but 
you so you can't really listen to it in the background unless of course you know japanese and you know then maybe you can but but that's you know it's something that you really have to actually pay attention to and i just i don't know that it's worth three hours of your time um i also watched uh recently uh by uh, another sovereign tech listener's suggestion i watched the tony hawk documentary which is also very relevant because Tony Hawk, the Tony Hawk pro skater games really got their start uh, on PlayStation. I mean, and really dominated and took over the world in a very real way on, on the PlayStation that documentary as well. Um, I feel like there's a lot skipped. It's only about an hour and 11 minutes. Um, I don't know unless you're going to make it about more, you know, skateboarding games of which there are plenty. In fact, if I had any critique of the, of the documentary, it's that, they basically treat it like, ah, oh, there really weren't any, you know, great, uh, uh, you know, skateboarding games. It, it never really hit anything. It wasn't that big of a deal as to where, you know, me growing up, like everybody fucking played skate or die, uh, TNC surf design. Everybody played TNC. And that, that was a game that was both surfing and skateboarding. Tremendous, an absolute NES classic. You want to play a classic Nintendo game, uh, TNC surf design, fucking amazing. Um, yeah, so I, I I felt like that was a little dismissive. I'll grant you that, you know, Tony Hawk, I mean, because look, the Tony Hawk games, which could be on this top eight that I'm about to talk about, the Tony Hawk games, what they really did was, I mean, it, it, it's somewhat of the Grand Theft Auto Syndrome. I mean, they, they just gave you a really open world and the ability to do just about anything you wanted in that open world. And of course the soundtracks were amazing. I mean, you know, that it gave a lot there. There was a, they had, and PlayStation really did this in a way too. You, both Sony and really the Tony Hawk games did two things. And this might be one of the most important things to bring up about the PlayStation. You had the precious, priceless, both terms, opportunity to craft a subculture. Uh, you crafted a subculture with, you know, skateboarding, of course, with the Tony Hawk games. Um, and if you watch the documentary, it kind of proves the point. And you crafted a subculture really in, you know, video gamers that were, you know, gamers that were older. And you did that by really giving their, you know, their, their, their mature attitude visibility, even just in the commercials, you know. Um, or self-awareness around video gaming itself. I mean, I don't think anybody will ever forget the commercials in the United States for, uh, for Final Fantasy VII, which if somebody wanted to put that on their number one for the PlayStation, I mean, who'd argue against them, right? Uh, I mean, I, I don't have any Final Fantasy games on my list, uh, but I mean, I, seven, eight, and nine, I think are all tremendous games, best in series uh, in, in many ways. Uh, I like, frankly, I like eight. I'm not being hipster and saying this. I really like eight a lot more than I like seven. Um, but I get it. I totally fucking get it. But PlayStation was able to basically like create the attitude and yeah, the culture. And they really did, you know, around like what, okay. You know, what, what do gamers play? What even what, in many ways, what do they look like? A lot of the, you know, the, the more extreme attitudes and everything that, that, that Sony was putting on display in, um, you know, in a lot of commercials. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yes. So the final fantasy seven commercial, you know, it's like, it's this big epic thing. And then the guy says at the end of it, it's like, and if you, you know, if anything bad happens, you can always hit the reset button. 
and it was just, it was the self-awareness of, you know, not just trying to like sell you on the movie of it, but also the understanding that, yeah, you're playing a video game and that hardware has a reset button and you can hit it, you know? <laughs> and, and that, that was, that was powerful. You didn't, you didn't really get that before. Uh, with, with gaming where it was self-aware of the person playing the game. And it was very much speaking to the person playing the game instead of trying to sell a cinema quality experience to everybody, which there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and same thing would happen with the crash bandicoot commercials. Everybody remembers those where he was going up to the Nintendo of America building, you know, and it's like your days are numbered, man, you know, and all that stuff. Uh, yes. Also, you know, Sega was crafting a more badass attitude with the Sega stream and all that previously, you know, starting with the Genesis um, and so on. But, but PlayStation really took it to a, to a next level where they really spoke to you as the more grown up gamer um, or the teenager, you know, which even that would be more grown up because again, even at that time, people thought that the average age of the gamer was eight years old and no one was speaking to the 18 year olds, not even Nintendo. So Sony beat, or I mean, Sega did it kind of first, but Sony really, really didn't beat everybody to the punch, but they certainly had the strongest punch uh, as far as that goes. And, you know, because they were entering, you know, their real roll of the dice entering the, the gaming ecosystem, you know, taking on the likes of, I mean, there was a lot of competition at the time, you know, when you got into the 32 bit era, uh, I mean, you know, you had Panasonic trying their hand at things. You had Atari going at it again, you know, with the Jaguar. Um, you had all kinds of, you know, weird systems coming out here, you know, right and left. And the thing is, is that Sony basically had, and, and the documentary kind of talks about this. Sony basically had, and we'll get into the top eight, don't worry. Sony basically had the, you know, th they were a juggernaut in, in the movie industry, in entertainment in general. They, you know, I mean, they had, you know, not just movies, but music, they were an absolute juggernaut. And so they had a lot of panache, pizzazz, perhaps they just had a lot of resources, a lot of flair to, to, to pull from. And, and, and just, they, they knew how to craft, you know, they knew how to craft an attitude and they knew how to make things look like the biggest fucking deal ever because they'd been doing it forever with movies and music. And so, you know, the marketing machine that, that Sony had, you know, that the, the very well oiled already really let them, uh, I think enter the space, you know, in, in a very dominant way, very quickly, of course they pulled the pricing trick and all that other stuff as well, but it really allowed them to do that. And, and they knew how to speak to the older audiences that they were, that they were going after because they already had their music business, their, uh, their movie business and so on that, for decades or, you know, for at least a decade, over a decade, you know, knew how to do that already. And so they just capitalized on that to say nothing of the fact that now you had, I mean, you could also bring all of that, you know, all that, uh, uh, knowledge and ability in movies and music. You could bring that in because the games were CD based. So you could put on real full motion video. They weren't the first to do that. Sega was of course with the Sega CD and again, PC, whole other animal. But they could bring that in again with that flair that even if you look back, you know, if you, if you look back at like G police or something like that, you might think they're poorly acted or something like that. Yeah. But you got to understand you were playing a video game and you were seeing full motion video. It was like you were playing a movie 
it worked great for Dragon's Lair and it worked great again in 96. <laughs> you know, it worked great again with the PlayStation 1. It was a big deal. No one had done that before. And it just it just lended to uh, the amazement of what you were about to play. Even if by today's standards, both the acting, the full motion video, the effects, the 3D graphics for the game itself and so on would be considered substandard at the time. Mind blowing, mind blowing. Video games were not supposed to do that to the average person or with the, you know, the average person was not to experience that in a video game. Uh, and now they were. And for a not bad price point, in fact, something that this is another thing I feel like that documentary should have talked about where the PlayStation was so dominant was that they got to a point when they started doing their greatest hits line. Again, they don't even, they don't bother to make mention of this. They talk about when you got the e-store, right. Or when you got uh, you know, digital releases with the PlayStation three and so on, and you could sell games for 15 bucks. Yeah. But you got to, Sony beat everybody to the punch in the nineties. And this is one of the things, this is one of the keys as to why the PlayStation brand became so dominant. And I don't think people realize this because they were appealing to such a broad demographic and making sure that it wasn't just eight year olds buying their system. They had a lot more people, you know, a much larger, uh, uh, you know, customer base. Okay. Because of this customer base, you could sell millions and millions and millions of copies of games. And if you sold just enough games or, you know, of one game, say in this case, Final Fantasy VII, Sony would re-release it as what they called a greatest hit. Okay. Now, obviously they got this idea from what, from their music business, they would release it as a greatest hit and part of a greatest hits collection. Right. And it would have that nice green. If you remember on the CD cases, normally it'd be, you know, PlayStation in black. Now it'd be neon green or like a, like a toxic green, which is absolutely the beautiful, wonderful color of the nineties, hundred percent supportive of it. And it would say greatest hits on it. And you could buy a triple a game, a best-selling game, a game that clearly tons of people have played and you could buy it for 20 bucks instead of 50 or 60 unheard of, absolutely unheard of. Yeah. Games would get discounted over time, but like this was, these were games that would get a push at 20 bucks. They weren't in a discount bin. They were, you know, front and center. If anything, I mean, a lot of people ask like, okay, what did PlayStation do that, that somehow they were able to, in many ways, best, you know, Nintendo with the Nintendo 64. Well, I would argue that overall, the PlayStation had a larger, uh, they had better games, more better games than the N64 had. The N64 had absolutely great games, no doubt about them, but so did, no doubt about it. But the PlayStation one did as well, but they had more of them. Okay. Uh, for varying reasons. So there's that. Yes. But I think that the greatest hits, which Nintendo would end up you know, basically everybody in gaming would end up copying the greatest hits model eventually. But when you could walk away with a triple a game for, you know, new release, or I mean, not a re I should say a new re-release for 20 bucks and the console, you know, I mean that, yeah, people are going to be all over that again. That was absolutely unheard of for $20 games for like, because before you'd have, Oh yeah, no super Mario brothers. No, it still costs 50 bucks. You know, Legend of Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. It came out six years ago. It's still going to cost you 50 bucks. Now you had where Sony's like, no, no, 20 bucks. Take it. Unbelievable. 
And, and I think that that was, and they had so many games that they could sell at that price. Uh, I think that's absolutely what made them the dominant force. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, Sega would, would never exactly copy that with the Dreamcast. Uh, they didn't really get the time, I suppose, because the system only, you know, was only uh, supported for a couple of years. Um, if they did try, you know, try something a little, little harder like that or competed on pricing with games, maybe it could be a, a different piece of history, but certainly that, that was a, a major, major uh, arrow in Sony's quiver with the PlayStation one was the greatest hits line again, commonplace now, but back then, Oh no, that, that was absolutely, if there's anything revolutionary that was, um, so to get into, why don't we go ahead? I mean, you know, we don't need to get into the specs around the PlayStation one. Like I said, you really should check out that documentary. Um, if you are into that, you know, if, if you're into the specs around a console and so much more, um, this is definitely going to break a lot of that down for you and the history, you know, the Silicon and everything. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, as far as that goes, you get a lot of those details. There's just, there's a lot of things missed. I feel like in that documentary, and maybe, like I said, when it comes out on disc there, all of that'll be there and you'll have those big conversations. Um, they barely spent any time talking about tomb Raider tomb Raiders, another game where, yeah, I get it. I, I understand the importance of Mario 64, but Tomb Raider for many reasons, you know, had people exploring a fully 3d world and not leaving it. I mean, exploring it in a nay hypnotic way. It was just, again, you, you can't, you cannot understate just how important Lara Croft is to video games. You cannot I mean, she belongs in any conversation with Mario, with uh, Solid Snake, with, you know, go down the list of, of all the big characters that you think of, you know, Master Chief, whoever in gaming, Lara Croft needs to stand next to every single one of them as being just as important. And uh, I mean, especially for, for getting all kinds of new demographics into video games for a multitude of reasons. Okay. You don't have to get your head in the gutter as to why you can, but you don't have to. So, and that's another, that, that whole game series should, I mean, here, here's the thing. Like it's, it's tough. <laughs> I could easily put, you know, Tomb Raider two on, uh, you know, on my list of, of top eight PS one games, believe it or not. And maybe at some point, um, I'll do an expanded list, but you know, I've been doing top eights for a while. So we stick with it. Uh, you know, doing a top eight super Nintendo games actually pretty easy doing a top eight NES games, easy top eight, three DS, easy top eight DS, easy uh, top eight Xbox games, fairly easy uh, top eight dreamcast games, easy top eight Genesis games, easy Saturn, easy where doing a top eight is practically impossible would be with the PlayStation one and the PlayStation two. Uh, so this is an impossible list in many ways, because there are so many games that should get talked about. Um, every single one of them is genre defining and many of them are even genre defying. And there are some games for the original PlayStation for the PlayStation one that there has never been another thing made like it since before or since there are some of the absolute most unique experiences ever in gaming. Even, even if you bring, you know, the PC master race in, how you doing boys? Even if you bring and gals and Z's. Even if you bring them in, 
they're still just, I mean, remarkable, unbelievable, indescribable. And I mean it. You ever play LSD? I, don't, I mean, I'm not asking if you've taken it. I'm saying, have you played the, uh, the, the Dream Simulator LSD on PlayStation 1? These are games that, that, that defy description. Um, and in, in that sense, I feel like, you know, if somebody were to ask me, okay, what's the bigger deal, the PlayStation 1 or the PlayStation 2? The PlayStation 2 certainly refined much of what we expected out of gaming ever since the PlayStation 1. It refined everything that was great about the PlayStation 1. Uh, it had the DVD player, which is no small thing. Like, you do not sneeze at that fact. Uh, also, I mean, to, to PlayStation's credit, it was, for many people, it was their first CD player. Audio cassettes were still a big thing in 1996, you understand. I mean, my first CD player was actually a CD-ROM drive in a, in a, in a computer, <laughs> you know, in my, in my, it was in my 486 and, and it had a, a, a you know, an audio, a, a one eighth jack on it. And it actually had controls for, for going through tracks because they knew at the time, I mean, now you can't even imagine it. Like why would a CD drive have, have buttons on it, you know, other than open, uh, you know, why would it have uh, track buttons and everything? No, no, no. Oh no, that, that was, that was a big deal when you had that added feature of playing a CD. So for the PlayStation, I mean, that was kind of a big deal. And they had that fun screen when you'd put it in where, uh, you know, you could, you could do different, uh, like you could have an oscilloscope going, you'd have all these different waveforms that you could, you could have appear on your screen. That was fun. It was a great CD player, uh, you know, as well and gave you nice visualizers. I, I thought that was slick, but to get back to it, you know, which system's better. I mean, the PlayStation two, you know, can play all the PlayStation one games. So you could kind of make the argument that it's a moot point, but to look at them in a more abstract uh, or broader scale, broader sense, th there is no system like the PlayStation one. Um, I, I love the PlayStation two, but I love it. You know, I wouldn't love it as much if it also couldn't play PlayStation one games. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you got to keep that in mind, but yeah, I mean, there's just no system that delivers such unique experiences. I mean, the PC would come close, but that wasn't really until there were a lot more independent game developers and they were able to get some, uh, get some, you know, notoriety and recognition and had platforms where they could distribute some of those odd games, you know, like say on steam or itch, uh, or, you, you know, pick your, uh, pick your platform. Right. But the PlayStation one, I mean, those games, they, they were getting public release. Sometimes they'd only be in Japan. In fact, some of the games on my top eight were technically only released in Japan. However, um, you know, today now you can get, uh, you know, fan translations get made. You can add them on to the, you know, to the, to the ISO, you know, you can add them on to the, uh, to the image of the game. Then you can burn the game and pop, you know, put it in and away you go. Uh, so those Japanese classics that, you know, nobody ever got, uh, at Western shores or even in Europe, um, you know, now you can actually try those. And they, some of these are just remarkable experiences, uh, that, some have gotten eventually would get, you know, releases, uh, you know, many generations of consoles on, you know, in, in, in some kind of classic, uh, uh, you know, repackaging or something or a uh, collection of, of games, but then some still haven't gotten re-released or had a, a proper, uh, official, you know, English translation or release. So, you know, and, and, and there are games in this list that are, that are going to go down that, but again, it just speaks more to that this is a system that I think has the most unique games ever made. 
Uh, and, and some of them, you know, again, some of these have never, some of these types of games have just never been tried before, or, I mean, they were definitely never tried before, but they've never been tried since. So without further ado, why don't we get into this top eight and let's talk about some of those games. I'm uh, going to start this one off now. Okay. Actually, let me start it off with zero. I'm cheating. I know. And there's going to be a ton of honorable mentions. Like I said, it's just, it's impossible. It's impossible to do a top eight. You can do a top eight, like best series on the system, but it's impossible uh, to do a top eight. Like there's no resident evil games on my list. There should be, but there aren't. Uh, I mean, those, those are games that absolutely, again, pun intended, change the game. Scary. I mean, can you remember the last time, you know, or can you remember even before say, you know, just in the, the 16 bit era, eight bit era, can you remember when a game like really made you fucking jump? Everybody remembers when the dog comes through the window. I mean, that, that was, that was just a moment in gaming moment in history. So they're not here, <laughs> but we'll get into what is, um, now number zero, this is a game and I didn't put it on this list cause I want to put some stuff that maybe people wouldn't necessarily think of. And I've done a PlayStation list before, but again, we're updating for PlayStation one list, uh, many years ago, but again, we're updating for 2020 here. Um, and number zero <laughs> is a game that I, it's just shy in my opinion, of being the greatest game of all time. And that is, and, and don't let it speak to the rest of the games. Cause you know what? Cause for some people, you even hint at the notion of wrestling and they instantly think, ah, oh, the conversation has gone down the tubes. Stop. <laughs> you know, nothing about uh, a lot of wrestling fans. The ones that get called smart marks, right? I mean, these are often genius, brilliant people who know exactly the reality of wrestling. And that's actually what they love about it. Uh, but anyway, um, in the nineties, of course, while PlayStation was bringing a new attitude, wrestling was as well up to the point that they now call it the attitude era for the WWE. Um, and they came out with a game originally called just called SmackDown. Okay. And of course that was like a new wrestling show to augment uh, Monday night raw, uh, in the nineties. And because of you know, this is the other important thing about CD-ROM based games or CD based games is that now, you know, you had some close to 700 megabytes of storage, data storage to play with, to take advantage of. Okay. Now a lot of, dare I say, most, uh, PlayStation games didn't even remotely, you know, come close to taking advantage of all that space. Others end up being four or five disc releases, right? Think your final fantasies, wing commanders, and so on. Um, maybe not five, but four discs anyway, at least <laughs> right. Legend of Dragoon, which could have been on this. Um, but anyway, you know, you had all that space. So what SmackDown did was create a very, very easy, not, not necessarily button mashing, but sort of close. But I mean, if you learn to master it, uh, it becomes more than button mashing, but a very simple control scheme for wrestling games. But it's, it's a simple control scheme that allowed for very impressive presentation in the game. And more importantly, the create a superstar was just loaded with what kind of wrestlers you could create. 
The first SmackDown game was, you know, very well received, a big deal. Uh, paradigm shift in wrestling games, really. Uh, we're still feeling that paradigm shift. Unfortunately, now it's just gotten tired. But at the time, it was absolutely revolutionary. SmackDown 2 would come out about a year later, um, towards the end of the PlayStation 1's run. I consider SmackDown 2, again, it's just, just beat out by TIE Fighter as being the greatest video game ever made. Not, a, not just on PlayStation 1, just fucking ever. Because you can, the, uh, the level of detail, even with such simple graphics that you can get to, you can create a character that really looks just like you or just like somebody you dream up or whatever. Uh, I mean, there were so many things you could do with that in the create a wrestler, and then you could create the move sets, you know, and, and you could customize all of that. I mean, you had, they ultimately became, I mean, before then, yeah, I'd play street fighter, but you know, before then mortal Kombat would really be my, uh, you know, my choice of, of, of fighter, uh, you know, a fighting game. But then once you get into where, how much you can customize with, with, uh, you know, SmackDown two, you'll almost, you know, at that point in my life, I would never pick up mortal Kombat again <laughs> because it's just like, no, I get to make me and be in the game, uh, you know, and do all the wrestling stuff that as a wrestling fan at the time, you know, I was very, very, you know, familiar with, um, so, yeah. And again, it all comes down to how much you could jam onto a CD and you could jam a lot. Uh, and you know, the music was there. You could have your own entrance music and also, I mean, not that you could put in custom stuff, but you could put in custom stuff that they already had on the disc. It, it, it was fantastic. It definitely made you feel like part of what, of course they would today call the WWE universe. Uh, just an unbelievable experience. Uh, an absolute, what, what I call lifestyle games, meaning games where you live it when you're playing the game and even outside of the game. And there are all, there are very few games that I, that I, I like to call lifestyle games. I'm not talking about like Fortnite and all that stuff, even though I suppose on a, on my, my dictionary definition of the, of the term, they would fit Uh tie fighter is a, you know, I mean that I consider a lifestyle game where you live and breathe that. Uh, and SmackDown two is another one of those games. Now the SmackDown series will go on. I mean, technically it was going on all the way until just last year, you know, with, with WWE 2k 20, uh, are all really successions from, um, the SmackDown series. But uh, I think SmackDown two, I still consider it the best of the bunch. Um, certainly like 2007 WWE or SmackDown versus raw 2007 is really, really solid as well, but those are probably the, the, the two best in that series ever. So that's my number zero, uh, because, but I, I didn't put it in my top eight because I just consider it like if we were having a conversation of greatest games ever made, it would be there. So let it be there. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's move on, um, and get into our actual top eight, start off with number one. Star Trek Invasion, released in the year 2000. Um, this is a, a space simulator, much like TIE Fighter that I just mentioned. Um, or uh, actually, there are other space simulators. It's amazing how many space simulators the PlayStation 1 has. PlayStation 2 has a couple. Uh, but PlayStation 1 has a lot. And space simulators were a big deal at the time on PC and would be a few years even after the year 2000. Uh, and they're kind of coming back into vogue, but these used to be considered like, because they were simulators, right? And so maybe to some degree, that's more of that lifestyle gaming or whatever. 
Um, this was not one necessarily, you know, this is more of a third person, which you could do that more as wing commander with games like tie fighter and some others, you know, you'd far more be in the cockpit because it just looks so damn cool. Uh, the cockpit certainly looked cool in these games as well, but it was definitely something played more from the third person perspective, but fine space simulator in itself. Uh, it has actually the voices of Patrick Stewart and Michael Dorn, of course, who plays Worf. Uh, he's heavily in the game. Um, and it introduces into the Star Trek universe. Not the first time this has been introduced, but the idea of basically starfighters in Star Trek, and it works really, really well. Um, I, I love this game to death. It's fairly, it's pretty challenging. Uh, if you want to get all the bonus objectives, it's going to take you a while. It's got a cool story, you know, about like this other species invading kind of like, uh, um, you know, the, the organic species, <laughs> I keep forgetting the number <laughs> I keep wanting to call it. I know it's, it's not species, uh, eight, six, one, three, that that's, that has to do with the Stanford experiment. It's species eight, four, seven, two. Um, anyway, they're, they're, they're kind of like that kind of in that vein, but it, it's a really, really great game. And if you're into space simulators and I like a third person perspective on this depends on the game, but this is one where I enjoy it. Uh, and again, Michael Dorn's narration is top notch. You're getting a great story, which you don't always get with space simulators, but this is a case where, where you really do. And it's also, you got to understand how rare it is for there to be a great Star Trek game. I'm not saying there aren't great Star Trek games. There are judgment rights, 25th anniversary, uh, bridge commander. I mean, they're out there, but like a really great Star Trek. I mean, and those are all really great too, but a really great Star Trek game. Those are actually very rare as to where with Star Wars, we have a lot of great games, uh, in the series, but Star Trek, not so much. This is one of them. This is one of the great, genuinely great, uh, games. So, but for whatever reason, I'm going to guess that while space simulators were popular on B on PC as new gamers were coming in, they didn't really hit it off with new gamers because they are complex games. And so I get the sense, maybe that's why they stopped making them so much for the PlayStation two. Um, I mean, racing games, which in many ways are, you know, there are racing simulators because they work generally on a two dimensional plane, minus some things in Wipeout. Uh, I think that, that people can kind of, get them a little better. Uh, but you know, full on working in 3d space, it's a little bit different. Uh, so I guess, you know, space simulators didn't exactly take off, but PlayStation one has some of the best space simulators ever made that never saw the light of day on PC and that are absolutely worth playing. Uh, so star Trek invasion, check that out. Actually, here's another space simulator, but this one is far more on rails and it's based off of, uh, an arcade game originally that they enhanced when they brought it to the PlayStation. Uh, so this is my number two pick and that's Starblade Alpha, which originally came out in 1991, but would get a re-release. And basically before this was even really a thing, got a full remastering and expansion when it got released for the PlayStation one. Um, it is more on rails. It feels like you're playing Star Fox, but if you're me, you know, in 1996 and 97, and you loved Star Fox, which I did, uh, definitely one of my top Nintendo franchises, uh, you couldn't get enough of this. And even though it was short, you kept trying to, you know, cause it is a, a short uh, uh, campaign. You just kept trying to do better. And it just looks so graphically impressive. Namco made it. I mean, it's just a really, really solid shooter. Uh, very difficult or very rare. The best thing you can do is just get a copy made 
of it, you know, like, like burn a disc or buy a replica copy, getting an original edition of Starblade Alpha, you are going to hash out triple digits at least uh, to get your hands on that. But it is a game that, in my opinion, is that good and plays that good. And again, at the time, not until the Dreamcast would people with, with Soul Calibur, the fighting game, would people realize that, oh, I can have a better experience, a better gaming experience, graphic-wise, everything else, at home than I can in the arcade. With, when the PlayStation 1 was king, that, that was yet to be true. Starblade Alpha, though, kind of made it true because it was an improvement over, granted a game that was a few years old, but it was a massive improvement over the original arcade experience. Um, and so for you to be able, I mean, like you, you got to understand the mystique that exists around playing a game at home that was originally only in arcades and it's actually, it's actually better than it was in the arcades. Same thing would end up happening with Soul Calibur on the Dreamcast, which is, you know, a small Marvel. Uh, but that was a big deal. So Starblade Alpha, tremendous. Check it out. Uh, next one. <laughs> I, I just noticed that my, my top three is all space simulators. I wonder what that says about me. But anyway, uh, the next one is Colony Wars 2 Vengeance, or just called Colony Wars Vengeance. This is a trilogy of space simulators made by Cygnosis, who I think is one of the greatest game studios of all time. Um, Sony was genius in scooping them up and acquiring them. Uh, because I mean, they just, you know, I mean, we're talking about the people that made Wipeout. Uh, they made G police, uh, there, there are, I mean, they made so many great, wildly futuristic looking games. Um, just, you know, if I ever did, and this might be interesting to do like a top eight of, of game studios, uh, this would, they'd easily be in the top three might even be number one. You know, the only people that I think would really beat them would be Nintendo or like LucasArts. So they'd be in the top three, but they'd be combating, in my in my opinion, against uh, Nintendo and LucasArts. Uh, and of course, with Nintendo, you know, all right, well, which studio within Nintendo? You know, you got to go there. But anyway, um, yeah, so Colony Wars 2. Not only a great space simulator and like, you know, multiple discs and everything, um, but it turned... So it's a sequel to a game that was fairly successful, which was the first Colony Wars game, which was also a brilliant space simulator. Everything, and, and I've talked about this game before, because what happens is when you start playing Colony Wars 2, you find out, you thought during Colony Wars 1 that you were the good guy and you were stopping some kind of evil empire. You find out in Colony Wars 2, it was actually the other way around, that you were the bad guys the whole time in the first Colony Wars game. And I, when I found that out, you know, just in the opening cinematic, my jaw hit the floor. Not that I have a problem being the bad guy. Hell, I like being the villain. But my mind was blown, you know, <laughs> the, the, I mean, cause I, I think the first Colony Wars game, I mean, I put in at least 40 hours into that at least. And to find out that whole time that you were, you know, you were playing for the wrong team. <laughs> that was amazing. So, you know, that reveal alone was awesome, but then everything that worked really well in Colony Wars, they, they took to the next level, um, in, in, in Colony Wars too. Uh, and Colony Wars has the whole series has, uh, some unique, uh, physics to it or mechanics, I guess I should say to it. 
uh, where your the way your thrusters work, like you, you have to constantly hold down thrust as to where with other games, you generally don't. And I'm sure Cygnosis learned this from the wipeout games, but with other space simulators, usually, you know, you set your engines to whatever speed and away you go. It's very different. Um, and because you have so many different thruster movements within colony wars. And, and I imagine it plays more like if you actually, if we actually had starfighters, what it would be like, uh, it plays like that. So really, really unique gameplay, uh, and great storylines going all the way from the first colony wars to colony wars three, just a, a great line of stories. Uh, there was supposed, I think there was supposed to be a colony wars game for PlayStation two. Why that didn't happen. I don't know. Uh, because it's a, it's a great trilogy. Uh, worth owning a PlayStation one or an emulator anyway on its own. Um, so let's move on from that. Number four, this is where we get into some of the oddballs. Uh, and this is a notorious game. It was not just released for PlayStation. It was also released, uh, for the, well, it was actually, it was also released for the PC 989821, but that's a whole other console that we'd have to talk about. Uh, but it was also released for the 3DO as well as the Sega Saturn. But for all of those, only in Japan. And I don't know if it's technically his first game, but this is, or no, it can't be because he made Metal Gear beforehand for the MSX. Uh, but Hideo Kojima, which, you know, legend in game development. This is one of his first games. Uh, not the first, but one of his first, and it's called police knots. It was published by Konami and it is, this is hard science fiction. This is one of the best stories. Okay. You're, you're basically playing this guy who ends up in cryo sleep after a space colony blows up and he's just drifting in space for like 24 years. He gets found. He becomes, um, he becomes like this, uh, uh, like a cop in LA, uh, or a detective in LA. And he's looking into what happened to his, uh, you know, to his ex-wife and her husband's disappearance. It's, I, I don't want to give anything away. It's, it's an incredible story. And again, everything about it. I mean, so it has a very anime flair, but everything about it. I mean, this is hard science fiction and you don't get that a whole lot, especially in console games where it's like hard science fiction. It is here. Uh, it's a perfect game, uh, double disc. You can, again, it's normally only in Japanese. You can get the fan translation version of it. Uh, not hard to find at all online. I assure you, and you can rock it in an emulator or you can burn it and, you know, play it on a modded PS2 or PS1. Um, and it, it's, it is worth your time. Uh, I don't know why this, there's gotta be some kind of rights issue. I can't imagine why this game hasn't been re-released. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, it has never been re-released. If you somehow know that it has, please let me know. Um, but I'm, I'm basically hundred percent certain this has never been re-released because there's some games that I find out, oh, actually they re-released it for, you know, on, on the PlayStation network for the PS4. This is not one of those cases, uh, but hot damn, it should be. So check that out. Police knots, uh, from uh, 1996. I mean, almost a launch title for, for the uh, for the PlayStation one, uh, number five, let's move on. We, I want to wrap this baby up g within about an hour. Uh, number five, arc, the lad collection. Uh, now I'm doing the collection. There's it's actually, well, it's even more than a trilogy. Uh, arc, the lad was, it was originally, so not, this is a game series and it's an anime. It's also a manga. It's all over the place. Um, it is a major franchise 
that just a lot of people don't realize, you know, it is right up there with dragon quest, final fantasy, you know, go down the list of them. But this is like the one that, that, that people just, I don't know, whatever, don't think of. And a lot of Americans missed kind of like Lunar, right. Uh, silver star story and so on. Certainly those could be, even though they weren't just PlayStation exclusive, they, they could also be on here. Um, the Ark the Lad collection was the first way that Americans got to play Ark the Lad. And what it did on the PlayStation one was, I don't know that it's unique. It might be, but I thought it was pretty revolutionary. So it was a huge box set that you got for like 90 bucks. Totally worth it though. You have hundreds of hours of gameplay here. It came with all three games. Then it also came with a monster tournament game. And then it had like a making of disc because working designs, the, the game studio, they, they would do these like gorgeous releases of these, you know, Japanese classics, uh, in America where they come with posters and these hardcover books and everything. It was really amazing long before limited run games or any of these companies, you know, were, were a gleam in anybody's eye. And, but what was really unique. So it's a good story with Ark the Lad. I mean, it's, it's kind of your standard JRPG fare. I'm not going to, you know, lie about that, but what was unique was that if you had the save game on your PlayStation one memory card, remember memory cards, if you had the save game, from your, from the PlayStation one, you could save all of your stats for, or, or from Ark the Lad one, you could save them all for the characters when they return in Ark the Lad two. And then you could do the same thing going into Ark the Lad three. And so basically it wasn't like, you know, when you finished Ark the Lad one, and then you go to play Ark the Lad two, you weren't really starting from scratch, not entirely anyway. And everything you did in a previous game carried over. And I just like, when I read that, I remember reading it on the back of the box. I mean, the box was eye catching on its own, but I remember reading that on the back of the box and just saying, Oh, <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that what you do, what you spend hour, you know, say 40, 50 hours, whatever, uh, you know, in one game, which again, you know, if you're in school and you only have a couple hours or however much a night that adds up to, you know, quite a few days, if not months you know, to be able to carry over all that hard work into the sequel. Amazing. Just amazing. Uh, but it's also a really, really well done game in itself. Uh, and it, 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 it's a, it's a great story. Not, not terribly cliche. You know, there are JRPG conventions. I don't mean conventions that you go to. I mean, conventions, you know, within like their the story and gameplay. And some of those are there, but I, I think that overall, I mean, the Ark the Lad series is way, way up there as far as JRPG series goes. Uh, for me, uh, they would have other games for the PlayStation two. Obviously you can't use save games from the PlayStation one for the PlayStation two games. That would have been amazing, but they were completely different characters anyway. But that original Ark the Lad trilogy is, is just incredible. Uh, again, a, a great story, great stuff, a lot funny, very, that, that's an amazing thing too. Um, very funny that like some of the characters in it, like Pico and so on. I mean, just, just hilarious, but, but also everything that's going on is also very serious. Uh, but the fact that you could carry it on and what was really amazing. And, and this also was a stark contrast to what final fantasy was doing at the time. Cause at the time, you know, most final fantasy games, they didn't carry over from each other, right? Like the storylines didn't carry over. They were completely separate storylines, completely different worlds. Most of the time and everything, not until you get into, you know, final fantasy four, the after years, whatever. But with 
Ark the Lad, the direct correlation where when Ark appears again, kind of giving stuff away, I guess, but when he appears again in, in, in Ark the Lad 2, you're just like, oh yeah, here comes the hero, baby. And you're so excited. Not, but again, not only because of that, but also because all the stats and everything that you gave Ark the Lad in the first game, he's coming into the game with, fuck yeah. Oh, it, I mean, that, that was, that was such a nifty trick, such a nifty trick to do with the game saves. Uh, I mean, I got to give them a lot of credit for that. I don't know how exactly they pulled that off. Granted, the way the story is told, you know, makes it really viable, but damn nice move. And I don't know many games that have really done anything quite like that uh, since. And what a shame because I mean that, I don't know. It just makes you want to play the rest. It makes you want to play the other games in the series. So uh, yeah, Ark the Lad collection from 2002. Obviously that was towards the end of the PlayStation one's life, but uh, going out with a fucking bang, no doubt about it. Uh, and I've said this many times that for most consoles, their best games, the best games come out at the beginning and the end of the console life. There's good stuff that comes out in between, no doubt, but, and great stuff in fact, but you know, the, the amazing stuff is okay. What is introducing you to what this console can do, but then also how far could it be pushed? And you get that at the end. And that's where you end up with just some of the absolute gems of any console. Uh, let's go to number six, Gradius Gaiden or Gaiden or whatever, <laughs> whatever, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, this is a game. Now this has been re-released. It's been, it was re-released. There is a, uh, a Gradius uh, pack for the PlayStation portable, which by the way, side note, uh, the PlayStation Vita might be the best way to play PlayStation one games outside of the, having a modded PlayStation two. And even then it might be better than that because of the portable factor, but having, you know, basically this, you know, a great control scheme, which the PS Vita does have look into that if you want folks. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a brilliant way to go about it anyway. Uh, so this game would be included in a re-release pack, uh, for the PlayStation portable, which would also have Gradius one through four, uh, Gradius Gaiden. What? So first off Gradius, you know, in, in my top three game franchises of all time, um, basically, you know, if there's a greatest game for any system, it's probably going to end up in the top eight. Uh, I mean, preview, <laughs> if I ever get into a place, you know, when I get into a PlayStation two, uh, a top eight greatest five is instantly on that list might even be number one. Uh, but Gaiden was great or Gaiden, if you want to go with that, uh, was really, really great because it gave you more than just uh, Vic Viper and Lord British to play as you had a lot of other ships to choose from and they had some pretty cool abilities, you know, like the customization of the, of the starfighters in that was, I mean, it, it, and, and not look, there's a lot of Gradius games and even Gradius five, where you can't really get into the depth of customization that Gradius Gaiden allowed for. Uh, so that's why I put that there. If you're into shmups, this is one of the best ever made. Uh, in my opinion. And it, at the time, now this was only re released in Japan. Again, you can get it internationally now on the PlayStation portable, which the Vita can also emulate. Uh, but, <laughs> um, but at the time, you know, seeing Gradius action, seeing Vic Viper in 3d, you know, was it just in the opening, uh, uh, cinematic was, uh, was pretty mind blowing for me. Uh, I remember that. And, and wow. You know, 
So anyway, uh, originally only released in Japan, but you can get your hands on it. You can play it on a modded PS2 if you want, or again, or on a PS Vita. Uh, let's go to number seven. Number seven. This is another one of my top franchises. Legacy of Kane. Now, there were two games, and a lot of people don't know this. There were two games released in the Legacy of Kane series, a series that really deserves a proper ending. It had, it ended in, was it Defiance in it for the PlayStation 2 with a cliffhanger? It needs an ending, for fuck's sake. <laughs> but um, there are actually two games in the series on the PlayStation 1. There was Blood Omen, which is the first one, which came out in 1996, which is this you know, kind of a top down. I mean, it had a lot of like 3d cinematics in between, not full motion video, but you know, 3d graphic uh, cinematics, uh, and tremendous voice actors in it. In fact, I think was Renee Arbogenois on that, or he was in the later ones anyway. Uh, not, I mean, it has a huge storyline and a lot of really cool stuff in it. Blood Omen is a good game, but a lot of people, I think skipped blood Omen but went back to it after they played the game that came out three years later in the series. And that is soul reaver soul reaver, of course, starting the story of Raziel, uh, another one of those, you know, really, really big deal characters. Right. Uh, I think that that doesn't get enough of enough do, uh, you know, that belongs up there with your Lara Crofts, you know, and so on. Um, Soul Reaver, everybody's really excited for that. It had such unique ideas around it, uh, like the concept that in Soul Reaver, you don't actually die. You just end up like in an upside down world. It was really pulling off Stranger Things uh, 15 years before Stranger Things, you know, was was the shit in somebody's toilet and, at Netflix. Uh, so, you know, I mean, just, just very unique mechanics with that, uh, like the gliding mechanic where you had like broken wings that you could kind of glide on sort of like MDK, those games, another great PlayStation game. Um, yeah. I mean, it made for, and, and the storyline and the music and the overall presentation in soul reaver, like the opening sequence for a soul reaver. I know so many people that can quote that by heart. And when people found out, Hey, actually like this whole legacy of Kane thing, there was a game where you got to play Kane and it's called blood omen. And then everybody went back. So it's tough to say, was blood omen actually a great game or is, or do people think it's great because it was telling the backstory to a genuinely great game like soul reaver. And so I'm not going to give blood omen the, the, the I mean, it, it's going to share the spot with soul reaver because one game you can play Soul Reaver without playing Blood Omen, but you definitely want to play Blood Blood Omen after you play Soul Reaver. How did, if Blood Omen wasn't this big seller and it wasn't, how did they end up making a sequel in it? It's important to understand, and you kind of get a glimpse of this in that uh, a Bedrooms to Billions uh, documentary about the PlayStation that I mentioned at the top of this. You find out, or you, and, and I mean, I think some people already knew this even in the 90s, but there were a lot of people at the time who were a lot of developers who were really just filmmakers um, or wannabe filmmakers or even authors. And they saw in video games, especially in the capabilities of the PlayStation one, they saw the ability to tell their stories uh, in interesting action games. Uh, you know, odd world is one such case of this. And I think even if a game didn't do super well, 
you still had these developers or these writers effectively making great relationships with developers coming into them with these greats, you know, these, these sprawling stories. And the developer would be like, even if the first game didn't go, it's like, okay, yeah, you got an interesting story here. Can we make it just pick up and people don't have to play the previous one, but it gives us like a little sense of history that we can take on since, especially since the PlayStation one was a first generation console for Sony taking on, you know, companies like Sega and Nintendo that already had, uh, you know, a decade or so behind them. Yeah, that was an important thing for them to have. And so in creating universes, which, you know, Sony was definitely trying to do with a lot of PlayStation one series. They, yeah, I mean, they, they went with it. And so that's how these kinds of things could end up happening. And I'm so glad they did because then when you get the PlayStation two and you get soul reaver two, you get blood omen two, you get defiance. I mean, those, the, the storylines alone in those games are just, I mean, great games in and of themselves, but the storylines alone are fucking amazing in that. Uh, so Lexia Kane got, got to give it to them there. Uh, Tomb Raider could have sat in this slot as well. I, in some ways, I feel like they're um, two sides of the same coin, like a dark and a light side there uh, and made by the same company too. Idos Interactive, you know, and Crystal Dynamics and so on. But anyway, so Lexia Kane, Blood Omen and Soul Reaver, that's in my number seven slot. Let's go to number eight. And this could easily have been number one. <laughs> This is another one. It's not exactly a lifestyle game, but it was a game that I played and I fell so in love with the characters that I would spend many an hour, many a day imagining, thinking about what were these characters doing right now? You know, even though I wasn't playing the game, the game wasn't turned on. Actually, that's not true. Because to get uh, certain unlockables, you had to leave the game on for running for like 24 hours or something. So sometimes it was at home. And so, and I don't know if that's what got me started, started thinking down that, that, that train of thought of what are the characters doing now? But that's how much I love these characters. Not that they have really complex storylines in it either. But, you know, I mentioned Soul Calibur earlier. That got, that whole series got its start with a game called, in arcades, it was called Soul Edge. But in North America on the PlayStation one, it was called soul blade. And it is a fighting game, uh, by Namco. It shares a character, uh, in Yoshimitsu from, uh, or well, the series would, would share a character in Yoshimitsu from the Tekken games also made by Namco Tekken three. Yes, of course that could be on this list. It's not, but it could have been Uh soul blade. The whole presentation, the adding in of weapons is something that, put it a little above and beyond Mortal Kombat uh, and Street Fighter. And it made it something special. The speed of the game, and it does have speed. And and the, just the, the way that the, the 3D graphics, and again, it was another case where the arcade was coming home. It created, and then the storylines and everything, and even the endings, you got to understand this. The endings for the characters, right? Not uncommon in fighting games where you get like a little, you know, ending story for each one. Okay. Well, he won the tournament, blah, blah, blah. And you know, whatever happens. The, some of the endings for the characters were actually interactive and from a different perspective than it, than, you know, the 3d fighter for, well, I don't want to give anything away if you haven't done it before, because it's, it shocks you when it happens and it can completely change what the ending is. It's, it's awesome. Awesome. It is a total package uh, and, and a brilliant, I don't know if I want to call it the greatest fighting series of all time. Mortal Kombat should really own that title. 
but hot damn, is it close? Um, I mean, virtual fighter is great too. You know, I love them all, but boy, did, did soul blade really, really deliver on everything that the PlayStation could do. And it brought that arcade experience home and it just in whatever it took, you know, be it in the opening music video sequence of the game that just instantly sold you on all the characters and the characters are all kind of tropey, but it worked in that you instantly understood what the characters are about when they were presented to you. Uh, and again, the fighting mechanics themselves, you know, the game mechanics were top notch, incredible speed, depending upon the character, the weapons, you know, worked, were believable. Um, everything you had to do within the game, the storylines of each, uh, just would go on to create an incredible fighting universe. Uh, that, that again, shares some with, with Tekken, uh, as well. Uh, Namco, boy, they were top of their game. They pun intended, they knew what they were doing, uh, right here. And best, you know, SmackDown two, if you want to call that a brawler or wrestling game or whatever, you don't have to count it, but best fighting game on the PlayStation one soul blade hands down. I mean, just, just easily, uh, in, in, in what it was doing Tekken three gets there, but soul blade just has that something extra. That's very, very tough to describe. It has a certain ineffable to it in its entire presentation that, I mean, whether it's the voice acting even, which is all very simplistic, but it just, everything just works and it has a theme and it has a, I mean, the opening music talk about theme, fuck, but it has a theme and it just has a flow that makes more sense and is not incongruous in any way, even though the characters would clearly be from all different regions. Uh, it, it just made sense and just came together and was visually uh, remarkable and sonically and gameplay wise, everything about it. Perfect game, 10 out of 10. So that does it. You, you know, I, I know I, I said I was, there was going to be a bunch of honorable mentions, but we're already over an hour and I want to wrap this up. Um, I mean, again, a big deal was getting that arcade experience, right? Because cyber sled, which was a tremendous arcade game would end up on PlayStation. Uh, I mean, you had a bunch of those, uh, but, but there there's, there's other games. The, the updated asteroids was really, really cool for the system. Uh, I mentioned G police earlier. I mentioned the dream emulator, uh, reboot, a great game based on a TV, on a cartoon. Can you believe that? Yep. It existed. Uh, you had Nova storm from Cygnosis. You had the fear effect series, which had some, uh, <laughs> very interesting action in it. Uh, you had thrill kill, which never actually got released, but you can play it now. It's like a fighter with characters all dressed like BDSM characters. Why not? Uh, all these, these crazy, you know, and, and a lot of PC classics would end up on the PlayStation as well. Like magic carpet was there. Um, a game that, all right, here you, you want to, you want to, I, I hate this phrase, but I'll say it. you want a wild card of a game that you might not have thought of future cop LAPD. I never think of what the hell is this? Imagine you're, you're basically driving around an ed 209 out of RoboCop. And it's like three top down 3d. Just, you, you got to try it and then grab a friend and do co-op in it or, or, uh, uh, well, it's not just co-op, but it like, you know, you can do multiplayer. You can do co-op, but you can also do multiplayer deathmatch and capture the flag and all that. You are in for a time. Let me guarantee you that. So the PlayStation one, I couldn't even begin to get in all of the great games, but I gave you eight ones that I don't think often end up on a top eight list for the PlayStation one. So I wanted to really get them in here as far as rarities that probably have not gotten a re-release, um, or, you know, didn't get enough due. 
that you need to look back on and check out. And if you got the time, these are worth your time. So that's it for this Sovereign Tech Zomia 1 Underground special, a little bit of a gaming grid special, really. And I will see all of you on the other side. Game over.